You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, well, why don't we get started? Um, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's lecture, which is part of the regular Krika lecture series. My name is Ted Gerber. I'm the faculty director of the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia, also known as Krika. And as I mentioned, this is part of our regular Thursday afternoon lecture series. Uh, so now I'll turn the floor over to my colleague, uh, Catherine Siancio, who's Associate Professor of History here at UW-Madison, and she will introduce today's speaker. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Ted. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Anita Kurame. Professor Kurame is an associate professor at Bryn Mawr College, um, and she's been teaching there since 2013, the year after she received her PhD from Rutgers University. She has a wide range of research interests. They include the history of sexuality, women and gender history, um, conservatism and the politics of the far right, the history of human rights and the history of sport. And she's published articles on Hungarian gay and lesbian history um, in journals such as Sexualities and East European Politics and Societies. And she's also received a range of fellowships and awards, including a Mallon Foundation, Penn Humanities Forum Regional Fellowship and a Max Weber Postdoctoral Fellowship at the European University Institute. Professor Kurame's first book, which came out with the uh, Chicago uh, University Press uh, last year, is titled Queer Budapest, 1873 to 1961. And it's no exaggeration to say that Queer Budapest, which examines the politics of non-normative sexualities in modern Budapest, is a revolutionary book in the field of East European history. While historians have certainly looked at the formation of gender identity in East European, um, in modern Eastern Europe, uh, there have been few, if any, studies of non-normative sexualities. Professor Kurame's book reveals these histories across an impressively expansive time period, from the Habsburg Empire uh, to the liberal haughty regime in the interwar period to the fascist period during the Second World War, and then into the post-war communist years. She shows us the changes and in some ways more surprisingly the continuities across this vast panorama of modern Hungarian history. And just as importantly, she provides us with a model of how a historian might actually do this kind of work, um, considering that the sources, the historical record has often erased the experiences of gay and lesbian historical actors. She also helps us to reevaluate our understanding of the perceptions of post-1989 LGBTQ politics in Hungary and Eastern Europe more broadly. And in her epilogue, she notes, for instance, that multiple constituencies on both the right and the left have been too eager to connect the contemporary LGBTQ movement in Hungary with the West and with ideas about democracy, an approach that neglects the complicated relationship between Hungarian history and particularly illiberal regimes in Hungarian history and non-normative sexualities. I'm really looking forward to her talk, not least because of the preview that I got this morning when she very kindly came in to talk to the undergrads in my modern Eastern Europe class. And um, she answered their questions actively engaging them very graciously. Uh, they had so many questions about her work and I was just so impressed with, with how she engaged with the, the students. So the title of her talk for us today is Queer Budapest, 
sex, society, and the illiberal state, past and present. I know that you all join me in warmly welcoming Professor Anita Kurame. Thank you so much um, for that really generous introduction. And also thank you for the opportunity uh, for me able to talk about uh, my, my book to this uh, distinguished audience. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to share um, my screen and begin. <clears throat> so the end of the 19th century um, saw Budapest arrival to the scene of modern metropolises. Um, it was created in 1873 um, and it became the centerpiece of the Hungarian state um, to become modern. Um, and queers were hard, uh, at the heart of this project um, both at the same time uh, being a um, representative of, of degeneration, but also in the eyes of officials and um, statesmen in, in the Hungarian capital to the promise uh, to what it meant to be modern. Um, homosexual and homosexuality, the word itself uh, was invented by a Hungarian. Um, homosexuals became embraced as, as a sign of modernity and a, and a promise. Um, and, and as I argue in, in, in my book, um, this led to the creation of one of the first homosexual registries um, in, in the Western world, not necessarily as, as a form of punishment, but rather as tracking of blackmailers and also as a way of um, protecting what I call respected homosexuals um, who, who otherwise were um, fully uh, full members of Hungarian society from blackmailers. Um, so Budapest in the late 19th um, um, century emerged quite um, vigorously to the scene. And if you, we see the visuals and here is just um, a few visual um, images of, of Budapest at the time, it, reminded uh, contemporaries of, of, of Paris and soon enough, um, but the late 19th uh, century, early 20th century, uh, con contemporaries started to refer to Budapest as the Paris of Eastern Europe. However, what I, I like to argue and I would argue and put forward in the book that the early 20th century, Budapest was actually ahead of Paris, London, even, even Berlin, when it came to its management, the management of sexuality, and in particular non-normative sexuality, both in terms of um, imagining and seeing a public and a vibrant sexual culture is again a sign of modernity and progress, but also again, uh, a very importantly, the protection of again what I call respectful, uh, respectful homosexuals, which were otherwise uh, dutiful and productive members of, of, of Hungarian society. Um, and again, this is just to give you a quote that uh, Budapest received international acclaim for its um, speedy growth and also modernity. Again, just to give you um, another example, it wasn't just the homosexual registry that was, that was new and novel and in inventive, but also 
Budapest became the home of the first continental subway, which if you've been to Budapest, you see that it's still running a bit creakily. So the city officials, um, journalists and, and um, policemen traveled across the globe and truly um, looked at ways in which essentially urban planning um, and the city management could be the most scientific and forward looking. And it, this is the result, and this was the um, result, and this is how, um, for instance, uh, in, in my case, the homosexual registry came about. And again, um, and it's important that with the registry, which then continues in the subsequent political regimes that, we, that were very different in character, and I'll, and I'll get to it um, in a moment, um, but this, this approach, I argue, uh, was written out of history and, and, and really occluded from history on both sides of the Iron Curtain, very much uh, for the reason of, of the Cold War, and we will get to that. Um, but just to give you an example of, in terms of um, the detailed uh, information that the homosexual registry contained, which was again set up in the early 20th century, and um, for all historical purposes, it's likely continued to until 1989. Um, and we can talk more about it in the Q&A in terms of its whereabouts. Um, it's, it's, it continues to be missing. But uh, information um, from the registry um, could be located across time. And this, uh, this is how the registry in, in the early 20th century recorded information. So you could see it's incredibly extensive and truly wants to get a, um, a comprehensive look of, of, the of the people who are registered. And, and I have to, I, I should mention that this was only for homosexual men, um, since it was only um, male homosexual acts that, was, that, uh, that were criminalized, unlike in say um, the Austrian part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy where both male and female homosexuality was criminalized in the late 19th century. And so this registry continues um, in the following era after uh, the fall of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy after World War I, where um, essentially we'll, we'll have uh, a subsequent uh, illiberal regimes that, that I argue for very different reasons, but continue to actually tolerate and also um, protect this class of homosexual men, uh, despite keeping the registry um, ongoing. So traditional historiography um, that looks at the legacy of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, uh, I mean, this uh, case of, of Hungary especially, tend to stress uh, this, the restructures, the very vast differences in terms of political system that follow after World War I, when Hungary experiences um, a, a communist regime and then an uh, authoritarian conservative regime followed by, of course, communism. So these, these, these historians and, um, tend to stress the differences in the political ruptures. However, what I um, argue and what I showcase in, in, in my book, Queer Budapest, is that if you look at actually these regimes through the lens of sexuality, a remarkable picture emerges, namely that these um, regimes actually learned and built on one another and continued um, a very, very um, similar approaches in their, um, in their treatment of non-normative sexualities. So I essentially 
um, put forth four kind of main arguments um, throughout my book, which covers the history of non-normative sexualities from the late 19th century, really up to the present. One is about um, continuity, that is how subsequent political regimes um, that were often ideologically opposed, learn on and built on one another's approaches. I also complicate this idea that, you know, information and the circulation of knowledge was always west to east. <laughs> I show that in particularly the first um, two decades of the 20th century, Budapest was um, often at the forefront in discussions and both practice in terms of um, the treatment of, of non-normative sexualities and in particular homosexuality. And then I also complicate this notion that um, conservative um, governments and conservative political systems are inherently um, opposed to homosexuality. And um, I, I, I argue that um, actually the conservative interwar regime continued to tolerate certain forms of uh, homosexuality in private while um, of course um, at the same time being incredibly conservative in other ways. Um, and finally, the last um, point I, I want to make um, and I'm making the book and I want to make today is really the relationship between archives and collective memory. And I argue that because of the historical silencing that were um, essentially um, inherited by each regimes and they continued for different reasons, but the continuing historical silencing of, of queer sexualities and, and its records um, truly have a fundamental um, influence on the ways in which uh, we have to understand the gender and sexual politics since 1989 and, um, and, and today. Um, but just to keep going on, I, I I'll maybe talk briefly about just um, two of these illiberal systems in more detail and just mentioned um, the state socialist era and, uh, briefly. So 1919, uh, following World War I, Hungary becomes uh, the second second uh, Soviet nation, second Soviet state after, of course, Russia, where communists um, come into power. Now, this history, a very brief run, but mind you, 133 days, um, has been characterized by historians as an utter failure, both in terms of its um, the, the regime's brutality domestically, but also a total failed um, foreign policy in terms of uh, contributing to Hungary's great territorial loss following World War I. Um, and I don't necessarily dispute any of this, but what I um, like to show and, and, and talk a little bit about is how if you look at these regimes through the lens of sexuality, and in particular, um, the, 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 its approach to non-normative sexuality, um, in fact, a remarkable um, picture emerges um, that is that um, the Hungarian communists were actually at the forefront in rethinking the ways in which um, homosexuality has been approached. Um, so on, on this picture you see um, Sigmund Freud on the right and Chandra Ferenczi on the left, who of course were the forefathers of psychoanalysis. Um, and in terms of thinking about 
um, sexuality and homosexuality in, in, in particular, um, the dominant um, the dominant medical approaches were uh, psychological, uh, uh, psychiatry and neurology, the two dominant professions who were tasked to deal with homosexuality. And they did, did so by, um, by pathologizing it as a, a medical or a mental illness. Um, and that is that uh, that was um, that approach was of course institutionalized across the monarchy and across Europe. Um, thinking about, of course, the biological nature of, of homosexuality. Um, psychoanalysis, on the other hand, really stressed the psychological and um, unconscious um, and, and childhood, um, um, the importance of childhood in, in, in shaping se sexual preferences and sexual desire. And so what um, I happened to find, and uh, miraculously, and again, this is a whole another story in itself, in, into the archives of um, the city archives in Budapest, was the remarkable documents of the um, communist justice system of this brief communist dictatorship of the experimental criminology department, which was set up by the communists um, very immediately after they come into power. Um, and here uh, we could see that instead of um, thinking about homosexuality as a pathological criminal behavior, they elevate psychoanalysis and psychological approaches that is environmental factors as opposed to biological innate factors as the prime, um, the prime determining um, reason for one's homosexuality. And so in, 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 um, instead of um, instead of Vienna, instead of London or Berlin, psychoanalysis actually becomes institutionalized first at a university, not on these, uh, you know, uh, the places where we associate psychoanalysis with, um, uh, most namely Vienna or even London or Berlin, but rather in Budapest. So during the brief period of, um, of, of the communist dictatorship, psychoanalysis um, and more generally, the social sciences are elevated as the way forward, as a way to revolutionize society and transform Hungarian subjects into um, communist citizens. And it is um, incredibly, um, you know, this is very much um, influences and, and, and manifests itself the ways in which they approach homosexuality at uh, the experimental criminology department. And so I found records where, where you can see that instead of the same, the same people who would have under the former system uh, would have been thought as um, medically ill, um, also having a criminal behavior are reconceptualized as, as people whose homosexual acts are a result of uh, on their underprivileged and um, and and um, disadvantaged uh, background, due to of course the bourgeois and and capitalist society, right? So you see a, a reframing of homosexuality as essentially a a behavior that, at the same time, is a result of unfortunate circumstances, psychological and sociological, but also a circumstance that that could be 
reformed and, and healed through the means of talk therapy that, that is, you know, psychological and, 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 um, and psychoanalytical um, modes that could be, uh, or, or treatments could, could actually be put forth to, to heal and reintegrate former homosexuals into, into the Hungarian future socialist society. Um, and now, of course, um, we have to realize that 133 days was very short. And so it most likely these efforts were never actually fully carried out. Nevertheless, I, I argue that the idea that sexuality was fluid um, and that certain homosexual, homosexualities could be healed remain influential in, in, um, the, coming, in the coming decades. Um, and so this is just to show that um, Budapest and Hung the Hungarian communists were not only revolutionary in, in terms of the reconceptualization of homosexuality, uh, which foreshadowed approaches, interwar approaches, both in um, communist Russia, but also in, in Vienna and in, in, in Weimar Berlin that again, um, thought about um, homosexuality through much more in a psychoanalytical and, um, lens. But also I argue that was actually a um, revolutionary approach to crime that where essentially crime and criminality is reimagined um, through the lens of, of psychoanalysis and so the social sciences more generally. But so what happens when, of course, um, the communists are defeated and we arrive to the interwar um, authoritarian conservative regime that um, defines itself totally against as an anti-communist, um, anti-liberal, nationalist, um, conservative, um, system that, of course, in, in contrast to interwar Czechoslovakia or, or um, Germany, uh, doesn't allow uh, really a, a democratic debate, but rather is united by a conservative and nationalist um, revisionist um, ideology. And so, again, um, I think we have to take into consideration that uh, this is an incredible politically conservative regime that also had very conservative ideas um, about gender norms and uh, prescribed um, mas you know, military masculinity and also um, for its women, um, the idea of stay at home and um, fulfilling the, um, the nation meant, uh, meant to be a good mom and, and um, similarly to interwar regimes more generally, very much um, um, invested in the birth of healthy future Hungarian babies. But nevertheless, again, if we look at the actual records, um, what becomes visible that the same conservative regime that really um, came to police um, heterosexuality itself and women primarily really uh, went after prostitution, uh, venereal disease, nevertheless continued to tolerate certain forms of homosexuality. Um, and again, uh, we have to see this in the context of post-World War I, where officials on the ground were very much aware that after five years of trench war and being away in all male environments, many men 
and half of Hungarian men were perished by two million men, but two million men came back after the war. Many men were um, exposed to homosexual behaviors. Many men actually participated. Um, and also, uh, just like many other urban cities across, across Europe, there was a visible uh, homosexual or queer uh, male scene in, in Budapest following the war. And so the ideas of sexuality being fluid, that is um, the, the fact that your environment can corrupt was, a, was, was, a, was an idea that the conservative um, officials and, and people on the ground also adhere to, just like their, their communist counterparts, which, um, which was one of the reason why the conservatives uh, the conservative leadership, as well as the police and 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 um, the city leadership of Budapest, decided to to really limit discourses and public discourses about homosexuality. They believed that um, they could not uh, talk about homosexuality for the fear of of people being alert uh, to uh, such a behavior. On the other hand, the idea that um, that sexuality was fluid and things could be also um, healed it was also important in the sense that officials on the ground, just as um, this public health official in the 1930s that you can see, uh, were acutely aware that a lot of people were exposed and, and, and had, um, and had um, homosexual encounters, but that didn't mean that they were not productive members and they could not be full members of society. So they actually hoped to rehabilitate um, Hungarian men um, and you know, aspire them to all those conservative gender norms that aspired and they were um, very uh, visible and, and uh, in terms of ideas were, were um, disseminated Ad nauseum, but nevertheless, on the ground, homosexual uh, homosexuals, I, I've, I've argued, could continue to um, to continue their 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 uh, homosexual lifestyle as long, and this is very important. They did so in in private, uh, away from public eye, and also uh, they engaged in consensual um, sexual acts. And just to show you something, and this is very important in the context of, of course, now we are in the mid 1930s at the same time when Nazi Germany and fascist Italy already um, prosecuting their, their uh, homosexuals and it's not, it's not fulfilling the ideas, of course, the new Nazi or new fascist men, um, the Hungarian authorities decided not to do that. Yet the registry, which I introduced you to at the beginning, continue in, um, to be in place. And so this is um, the same author whose uh, who's, um, quote we saw before in a different publication publishes uh, an article uh, where he actually details the, the different types of personnel on the male homosexual registry, which at by the 1930s, you could see um, range to about uh, 3,500 individuals. And what you can see is that um, you could see all school of life, different professions, different, um, different uh, socioeconomical backgrounds. Uh, but it's important that from 
this large registry, barely any of these people uh, were actually prosecuted and brought to trial. So the registry continued to function and they, in fact, the conservative, under the conservative regime, um, male sex work was increasingly scrutinized and, and, um, and prosecuted along with, um, along with underaged sex, but also, um, people who were on the registry but were blackmailed also could be protected by, by the police actually going after the blackmailers as opposed to, as opposed to the so to speak respectable homosexuals themselves. And this um, tolerant attitude, I argue, uh, comes um, to an end with Hungary's entry to World War I, where I found documents that in 1941, um, the Minister of Interior actually wanted to set up a homosexual battalion, uh, not unlike the Jewish forced labor force um, based on the registry, which then the Ministry of um, uh, War and uh, um, said, thank you, but no thank you. Um, but then really the real break comes with the brief Salashi regime, which is a very, of course, um, at the end of World War II, um, pro-Nazi regime that um, breaks this long um, history of tolerance and actually creates a, a, a new legal code that would have uh, actually um, um, not only punished homosexual acts but would lead to um, castration of, of, of homosexuals. However, with, um, with the end of the war, this never actually uh, were implemented and we arrived to the communist regime, um, which, which um, actually continues the, the, on one hand, the silencing of homosexuality. So in official discourse, there's almost no mention of homosexuality. At the same time, it also steps up the criminal prosecution of homosexuals. But what I wanted to, um, just mentioned before I, I, we, I show you a, a turn to um, lesbians and a history of, 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 of female homosexuals is that what again, what a, another striking uh, feature of this um, toleration and silencing that the conservative interwar regime had that not even the far right elements, so not even the pro-Nazis and fascist Hungarians um, bring up homosexuals as, as scapegoats, which something that would happen um, elsewhere. Again, there's the silencing cut across uh, political affiliation that not only conservatives, but also um, the far right and Nazi elements also shared uh, in the interwar years. So then finally, when um, homosexuality bursts into the scene and becomes a national scandal, it does not involve male homosexuality, but rather lesbianism. And so lesbianism could not go on trial because it was not decriminalized. Nevertheless, um, in the form of adultery, female homosexuality becomes um, um, and serves as um, basically the, the, the impetus for one of the greatest political scandals of the 1920s. So, um, the scandal involves uh, the founder of the conservative Hungarian Women's Association, Cecil Tormai, who you could see is one of the people who welcomes Admiral Horti on the right, who becomes the leader of the conservative 
um, Hungarian regime in the interwar era, um, that Tormai is as, as the founder of the conservative women's um, organization, is also the editor of the most important conservative journal in Hungary. And she truly um, is identifies the, the kind of interwar conservative norms in terms of her political belief, anti-Semitic, um, na uh, nationalistic, and also adheres and uh, disseminates conservative gender norms, even though she fails to live up to her own um, her prescriptions. The other, um, and this is just another picture of her, and um, the other party in the scandal is um, the co-founder of the Hungarian conservative women's movement, Eduardina Pallavicini on the left, and her um, noble husband, um, Rafael Zici, um, who actually initiates the scandal by filing for divorce um, based on adultery between the two women. And so the two, uh, and then subsequently the women sue um, him for libel um, and the two cases go on for five years. Uh, the scandal um, really is reported widely in, not only in the papers of Budapest, but across Hungary. And really the trials, both trials are all about what the two women did in the bedroom. Um, the servant voices are who are become the bearers of truth initially. They are the ones who are the, the kind of key witnesses. Um, Rafael Zici um, um, have his servants um, using cutting edge technology, uh, installing microphones in the women's um, bedroom along with peepholes. And this, they, they record their observations. And this is where they, um, the, the bulk of the, the accusations come. In addition though, uh, there were the, two, the trials um, have over hundred uh, witnesses from the cream of the crop of aristocracy, as well as medical experts who testify on, you know, what lesbianism meant and what female homosexuality consisted according um, to medical opinions of the time. And what is important that this was all, again, the whole trial was about um, the sexual nature of their relationship. Yet, um, yet when we come to the end of the trial and there are indications that actually um, Horty, so the regent themselves actually um, uh, personally made sure that there were the right um, decisions and uh, it's important to, to say what those decisions were. So the um, Zichi basically lost on all accounts. He couldn't divorce um, his, his wife and also um, he was, and the servants were found guilty of libel and, and eventually um, uh, put in jail. Um, but what is important that um, the courts, the end of uh, the five year hiatus and, and talk and, and, and uh, trial after trial, um, the courts eventually decided to write um, sexuality out of the case, right? Um, and they reframed um, the relationship of the two women, essentially asexual um, friendship. Um, and again, it's just, just to give you a flavor, um, this is a quote that comes from the criminal court's um, decision. And so in doing so, um, of course, it could, it, they would allow for um, Tormai to go on 
and reclaim her uh, public life, which then also would include being nominated for um, the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1937, but also importantly, um, make sure that um, female homosexuality uh, essentially would be written out of historical records. And, and why this is incredibly important is because um, something happens to the records and Austro-Hungarian legacy bureaucracy has usually leaves a lot of records. Yet the only thing that survives from this mammoth case and the two cases is literally the final decisions of the courts and the servant voices. All the other sources, likely the ones, particularly the medical ones that could have implicated the two women, uh, all the aristocrats voices and all the people who were deposed, all those sources are, are basically um, gone from the historical files. And I think this is again, becomes very important in light of what happens next, which is the communist system uh, that of course, um, you know, the state socialist uh, political system that follows after World War II and a brief, um, brief democratic experiment. But by 1949, of course, Hungary, along with um, the rest of the Eastern Bloc, um, becomes um, a, 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 a basically a satellite state of, of the Soviet Union. And so um, why this is important, because the same silencing that continues on, under the communist system, albeit for different reasons, and I'll talk about that in a moment, allows um, Tormay to reemerge after 1989 as a usable and loved, beloved figure of the far right, as the greatest Hungarian woman ever lived. Um, the fact that these sources disappeared also allow the new nationalist um, groups to embrace her for her conservative. And of course, we, we are, it's not surprising that they embrace her for her views, which again, were anti-Semitic, chauvinistic, and espousing traditional gender norms. But what is more surprising that they do so without um, examining her, her, her pub, uh, personal persona, which fall, fell short both the conservative inter, interwar era, but also, um, current um, expectations of, of great Hungarians. Um, and so what is, um, what the state socialist era has to do with um, the silencing is, 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 two, is threefold. Um, it's important because the silencing continues um, on the name of the in, in, in many ways from the fear um, and, and driven by the fear of the idea that homosexuality is something that is, 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 that is environmental, that it could actually, once exposed, uh, once talked about, you could, you could become curious and you could, you could um, generate more interest. Um, so the, the silencing in public discourse around homosexuality really um, continues until the 1980s of, of the HIV AIDS crisis that then um, breaks this uh, official silencing. But then it's also important just returning to the registry that in fact, the homosexual registry continues um, under the, the, the communists. And um, I found records, again, the registry continues to missing. We can talk about it and, and discuss it maybe in the Q&A, what reasons why that 
what it would be. But I found um, um, concrete evidence in the archives of the Secret Service, um, the, the relevant of the KGB, that the homosexual registry continued to be used, um, continued to be used as a form of, um, you know, as a way to turn people into informants in the price of keeping their homosexuality secret. So in many ways, this also reinforces the kind of silencing that implicates both the communist regime and, and people who worked for it, but also the homosexuals themselves who became informants under, under, um, under this uh, blackmail. And then importantly, um, the, the final uh, piece of this, of course, that you know, paradoxically, and again, we can talk more about it in the Q&A, uh, Hungary, along with the Czechoslovakia, actually turns out uh, it becomes one of the first countries that decriminalizes um, male homosexual acts under the age of 20 in 1961, going into effect to 1962, which is way before the US, even West Germany and the UK um, do so. But they do so um, with really the elevation of the, you know, the long um, gone uh, medical perception of uh, medical pathologization of homosexuality. So instead of um, seeing homosexuality as a, simply as a, as a environmental and, or a situational uh, and a criminal behavior, um, they also, they, they decriminalize um, male homosexual acts as a, as, a, as a form of medical pathology. And this um, comes after the brief period of the 50s of the high Stalinist era when really following kind of the 1919 example, the communists really tried to reform homosexuals and turn them into heterosexuals. As the failures became apparent that um, you can't just cure homosexuals and turn them into heterosexuals, the state decriminalizes uh, male homosexual acts and homosexuality, but at the same time, also by pathologizing it as, a, as a essentially an innate uh, medical pathology, um, also uh, plants the seed of a deep-seated homophobia that continue to exist uh, post-89 that sees homosexuality as a, as a, as a medical pathology. And so, um, now just to return to um, past and present and this idea of the long line of silencing um, allowed Tormey, the, the far right and nationalist after 89, but particularly really in the 2000s, re-embrace um, historical figures of, of, of the past, such as Tormey, um, regardless of their um, private persona. And very much, you know, we have a situation today when Fidesz, of course, the, the far right leading party and uh, with uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister, is absolutely aware that there are so many uh, homosexuals among its ranks. Um, but at the same time, the very, and often, in fact, as um, this gentleman on the picture uh, demonstrates, often the very same people who've been proposing um, really the uh, anti-LGBTQ regulations that are being exaggerated and really uh, become much more explicit during COVID, whether it's, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the banning of, of 
uh, trends and um, uh, gen gender uh, transformation or even gender nonconformity, the banning of, of, of um, gay adoption, etc. Often the same people are known homosexuals and known queers themselves, yet very similarly, like in, uh, in the, um, very similarly as it happened in the interwar conservative era in the case of, of uh, Cecile Tormey, as long as these people um, who dis disseminate these um, nationalist um, ideas um, keep their own sexuality private, um, Fides and in general, the far right um, do not care about what they do in their um, private life unless um, their queerness really burst into the scene, which was what happened with um, this gentleman who was a founder of Fides, a sire was a founder of Fides, and, um, the, the, the political party who now is, of course, has been in the supermajority in, in Hungary since 2008, um, and who, who has been actually in the European Parliament since, um, I think, I believe 2004. So he's been known to be gay, but no one, and yet at the same time also, again, passed you know, a constitutional ban on, on, on gay marriage, etc. Yet in the past November, he was busted by, for um, being at the secret homosexual gathering in Brussels. Um, and he was busted by the Brussels police for breaking um, COVID regulations. And he was actually caught climbing down the gutter with a backpack full of ecstasy. Um, so initially the Hungarian media uh, totally ignored it. And of course it, it received a lot of attention. It played wonderfully to the international media in terms of underscoring the hypocrisy of uh, what's happening with the you know, um, Polish and Hungarian um, leading parties approach to homosexuality. And you could see even receive some corporate interest by Lego a pretty ingenious um, sire is the one with the little yellow guy climbing down. Um, but what is um, instructive is to look at what happens in, in, in the mainstream Hungarian media, which, which is, of course, mostly owned by um, Fidesz oligarchs. So, like um, by now, he's essentially written out of history. He's, he's, he's not talked about and as if he's never existed. And this brings me to the last point what I want to make is. Is, is the kind of tragic um, legacy of this, of this silencing and erasure that also affects the queer and LGBTQ community itself. So while um, this idea that you know, queerness and, um, and, and gays um, came on the wings of liberal democracy, of course, has served Fidesz and, and nationalists across the Eastern Bloc to say that it's, to, it's, it's, you know, it's a democratic West and it's Western influence and it's the EU who's pushing uh, these non-Hungarian, uh, non non-Polish uh, identities into, into, um, into the public sphere. If you look at the history, of course, it's not true. But ironically, what is also interesting is that um, not having historical traits and not having these um, histories also um, basically uh, not allowed the, the queer communities in, in, in Hungary and elsewhere to have a usable past, right? So you can have really um, historically problematic figures, so to speak, uh, like Cecil Tormey, 
and, and Ratcliffe Hall in, in the British context, but what is different, like the likes of Oscar Wilde and Ratcliffe Hall with all their problems in terms of class and their own prejudices, nevertheless served as sandboards and platforms for the LGBTQ community to have these very important discussions about um, the legacy of, of these figures, but also thinking about constructing a usable LGBTQ past for their respected places. In Hungary, this has not been the case. Um, for one reason, of course, uh, Cecil Torma's political views were very, um, you know, it, it just did not serve the interests of the LGBTQ community. But also, importantly, I argue that the, the historical and, and systematic silences of the LGBTQ voices and, and presence in the long history, in their long history, also stopped them from allowing um, the, the, you know, the now visible and, and um, growing LGBT communities to claim them for their own selves and have their own histories, not just you know, focusing in the, the present. Um, anyway, I'll stop here. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, it's very, very interesting. Um, lots of diverse uh, topics and perspectives. Um, okay, so now I will open up the floor to questions and comments. And as I said, uh, please use the um, raise hand function, which you can find in the participants window in Zoom. And um, I'll give people a moment uh, while people are preparing their questions. I, I do have a just an immediate question, which is really, I, I, I'm really curious about this registry uh, I'm not a historian, I'm a sociologist, but I'm wondering, so so could you just say a little bit more explaining what this registry is? like, And was it something that people signed up for or were they put on the registry by the authorities or how, and what was the purpose of it? I mean, what, what was the justification for having this registry? Great question, um, thank you. So the registry was set up as part of um, creating a criminal registry for the, the emerging Budapest Metropolitan Police. And they go around the world and literally it's the second place in the world after London. Of course, it was the colonies, India first, where fingerprinting comes about, right? So you have these really um, eager officials that they want to have the scientific management of a, of a new, huge, you know, uh, modern city. And so it, it's part part of it, the initial, the roots of it lay in this idea of how to create um, a registry that could catalog people. But of course, this is also a late 19th century um, context. There's also a tremendous interest in cataloging human behavior and typology of trying to categorize people into, you know, um, social and, and also mostly social categories and try to make correlations of you know having this registry what can we learn about it but in terms of how people get on the registries is the police so the police similar with um, female prostitution it's the police who registers you but unlike in the case of female prostitution uh, of course women are not forced to have medical examination I mean men are not forced to have medical examination on a regular basis um, as the case in in, in the uh, in the prostitution, in the case of uh, women who were registered as prostitutes, men here get be put on a, a device squad of the police um, who then keep track of 
um, the men on the registry, but they put on the registry, but not prosecute them. So the idea that they gather information and if people, um, people uh, commit other crimes or they come into in, in question with the law, um, you know, they, they do get arrested. And there are, there are people from the registry who in all periods also get um, uh, prosecuted uh, for, but that is, you know, in the circumstances, if their behavior is public or if they, they, they solicit sex or if they, um, of course, it's, it's, uh, it's unconsensual or, or it's underage, right? So, but, but overall you have um, a system that it's put in place, but then used quite differently. It's similarly used in the, the conservative era, but then the, the state socialist era where we have no records, right? So I only find basically um, um, hints to the homosexual registry, thanks to the fantastic archivist of the Secret Service. So Hungary's, sorry, I stopped talking a moment. Hungary is one of it's the only country that hasn't opened its its um, Secret Service archive to it, its publics, right? So, if you've seen, um, it's been too long. Never mind. There have been so that you know in the in the case of the KJB, in the case of the DDR, you have the secret uh, records are open to the public, so you can see who was an informant. In Hungary, it never was the case, it's still not public, which means that it's in the interest of people in power to make sure that whoever was on the registry as well as whoever, um, so it's in the interest of some people to make sure that registry doesn't see the light. Um, but I, what I saw it in terms of the communist use um, in the 50s, 60s, the 70s is basically, I have these, um, manuals for uh, the secret service officers as to how to use the homosexual registry to turn people into informants and it was also used against the church um but i stopped i stopped there okay well no thanks i mean it's very interesting because it seems like a strange sort of institution they, I mean, so these people they haven't necessarily been, or in most cases haven't at all been committed of any crime but they're just like a list of people who have that designation and Anyway, well, I, I could ask you more questions about that, but uh, we have uh, a, a question from Matthew. So please go ahead and. Uh, Hi there. Um, this is really interesting, and I'm I'm really interested in cultural production. And um, like, I'm just thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about um, the book that came out back in the fall. Um, it's Meshersag Mindenke. My Hungarian is really bad, I'm sorry. Um, but like a fairy tale for everyone where uh, characters are being recast as uh, being Roma, being LGBT, gender non-conforming and whatnot. Um, and, you know, like for things that I've read in the English speaking world and in the German speaking world, everybody's been like, this is an amazing book and whatnot. Um, but I was just, I was interested, like, what kind of reaction came from the Hungarian-speaking world, you know, because it does seem like so many have, uh, have you know, so many people have purchased this. There's a second edition coming out, and if this is like really 
I mean, of course it's groundbreaking in so many ways, but also like thinking about what you've been talking about in the past and the present, if this is also building off of cultural production, uh, you know, the or standing, you know, of course, like in LGBT, LGBT history, we always say, you know, standing on the shoulders of, so is this standing on the shoulders of previous Hungarian cultural, cultural LGBT production? I like to think, but I would say no. <laughs> no, I think it's the actual um, still, so it's, you know, in the early 20th century, I have records of supposedly a homosexual, Hungarian homosexual organizations and clubs that were actually not only in Budapest, but then you really, the communist period really uh, erases that kind of idea. And we don't have, again, um, in contrast to even the limited space eventually that um, the LGBTQ community has in the Western world in the 50s, 60s, but then, you know, gay liberation in the 70s, you don't have anything like that. There's no social movements in a dictatorship. Um, so, but what, it, what I, um, you know, and what is happening today in the, in the reaction to, so it speaks to the actual importance of um, democracy, even though it's de decreasing the, the limits and the possibilities within democracy, it's decreasing by the day and we could even say it's it's all it's limited and and we are going towards an autocracy in in, in hungary again of course not just in hungary um but i i think it speaks to the actual vibrant lgbtq community that is there and there is a social movement and there is despite of all these anti-lgbtq regulations policy and rhetoric um there is um you know there is a movement who, who's, who's standing up and fighting and there are also people who are receptive to this now the official and mainstream reaction unfortunately is resembles i could i i, I mean to the kind of nazi book burning and the, and the book burning of hirschfeld you know the famous um, jewish sexologist in in the 30s now there was officials who um you know stood up and and basically um what do you call that machine that just eats the paper so in you know in shredder, they shredded the shredder, shredded the book and now get this there's this these um national volunteers who stick these stickers on each of the bookstores who sell this that they sell gay propaganda. There's not like the, whoever bookstore dares to carry this book. They are basically have these big posters reminding the the, the clientele that this bookstore is, is is selling essentially homosexual propaganda. And so, I mean, it's really disheartening. Again, the, I mean, I think they also the inter, um, the the national context, like the, you know. LGBTQ and, and there is some now recently been some actually serious and famous athletes who started to speak out some um, you know people in, in in the media but it's only far and few between um, generally people just um, again like in dictatorship um, stop speaking out uh, even if they disagree with this anti-LGBTQ and anti-gender campaign that is, is is truly being embraced as um, the driving platform of, of you know, the law and order party in, in Poland and Fidesz in, in, in Hungary, seeing, you know, painting basically gender equality and gender and, and queers as, 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 as the representation of, of everything that is wrong with the decadent West and, 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 and liberalism and democracy, right? Okay, uh, great, thanks. That's a 
rather frightening <laughs> situation to hear about. Uh, uh, Karen, Evans Romain. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is a fascinating talk. I'm going to follow up on Ted's question from the point of view of a Russianist. I teach Russian language and, and media. So I'm curious about the more recent history of this registry. It's terrifying thinking about this, the existence of a registry like this, the fact that there's a history of suppressing information that the archives aren't open and what's going on now. So is there any kind of is there evidence of a later version of this registry? Is there is that kind of policy being continued? Is there any evidence of, of, of that? Thank you for your question, Karen. Um, no, I don't, I mean, you know, I don't think there is a registry that was continued after 1989, especially, you know, from 1989, I think till 2004, until the accession to the and membership of the EU, it was a very different rhetoric, right? Um, on, on, the, on, on, the, on the high politics and even on a uh, more national um, public discourse around um, homosexuality being as, you know, then in, in, in some ways, similar to the early 20th century, it was seen as a way of demonstrating Hungary's belonging to the West, that we are more progressive. But in terms of the registry's fate, I mean, I, I can see two possibilities. One, the outgoing communist system destroy, regime destroyed it in 1989. Um, and the second, which is more sinister, is, is, is that the registry is still kept and selectively could be used as a form of blackmail. I mean, you know, periodically, and in particular in the case of oppositional figures, there comes the accusation and then the basically admittance that either themselves or their family members used to work for the secret service right and i think it's possible because the records have not been open and so they are they are in the hands of currently the fides and you know talking to the archivist it's clear everything happens under you know i mean not unlike probably putin's russia is even more so um, is in the hands of politicians and, and, and the leaders. It's really terrifying. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> okay. Um, any other questions? I mean, you just mentioned Putin's Russia. I just was wondering, what is your sense of, you know, how influential uh, are, are Putin's policies, you know, which have been well known to you know, have been in recent, uh, at least for the last decade, uh, targeting uh, queers and homosexuals as a way of, you know, denigrating the West and touting Russia's distinctive uh, civilization. Uh, in in Hungary, I imagine, you know, I, I'm also not very familiar with Eastern Europe, but I would imagine given the history of, you know, maybe not always peaceful relations between Russia and Hungary, how is it that uh, you have this movement associated with Hungarian nationalism that has also embraced this kind of Russian idea, or is it, is it just independent of that? I mean, what is the nature of uh, the relationship between the Russian government's anti-gay agenda and developments in Hungary? I guess is how I put the question more concisely. Thanks. Thank you for the question. Um, it's actually an important question. And, and, um, the Russian developments and the Russian turn um, towards again, really um, making queers as anti-Russian and, 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 and scapegoating them as everything that is wrong with the West and it's anti-national 
um, it was it was heartfeltly. I mean, um, embraced by the Hungarian far right um, immediately. So there was a before Fidesz became, I would say, uh, the far right um, government. There we also had a, a party called Yobik, which emerged um, in the late 2000s, um, and again was very like the third most um, popular party it was, um, you know, it was, I would say it's like the tea party of the um, the US, but then similarly had yeah, Republicans kind of uh, observed the tea party message. Um, Fidesz observed the uh, Jobbik's um, stances and, and Jobbik very early on um, made homosexuality as a ultimate national sin by not reproducing and then also being immoral and ultimately anti-Hungarian, right? And they did so very much along the rhetorical lines of uh, Putin's uh, Russia. Hmm. I see. So, so they quickly embraced that kind of messaging. That's right. And I think it's a cross transnational, right? In terms of uh, hmm. Russia's. Influence is 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 incredibly extensive, right? Uh, in terms of shaping the far right's rhetoric across the globe, um, and and that's no Hungary is no exception. Which is what is more ironic, and I always find it so puzzling that for you know forty five years, a generation of two generations of Hungarian grew up hating everything about Russia, and everything was defined against Russia, yeah. and yet down to the Hungarian's throat, we they have to have to accept. You know, whether it's vaccines that have not been gone through, everything that comes from Russia is, is reframed now. And it's interesting, there is not a lot of pushback. But again, how could you have expect pushback from, you know, within an increasingly authoritarian system from the population who knows that everything they say, everything they do can be held against them. And, it, and, and, and the system already does that. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's very uh, troubling to hear that it's gotten uh, that bad. Um, other questions, comments? Uh, yes, Catherine, please. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. I have many questions, um, but I'm going to ask just just two. Um, so the first one is about the sort of centrality of Budapest to the story. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could say a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, this is where we would expect there to be. It's a capital city, right? It's where we would expect perhaps there to be uh, the most sort of tolerance of, of different lifestyles. Um, so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about you know, what the story looks like um, for, for gay people outside of Budapest, if that's something that you looked at, if there's even, you know, yeah. fewer sources for that story, and if you could kind of reflect on, on sort of the provinces in Hungary and how that might feed into this story. Um, and then the second question, um, you know, what struck me when you had that form at the beginning from the mm -hmm. registry, and, you know, you talked about the, the physical appearance of people was, you know, thinking about how this fits in with ideas about eugenics. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder if you could if you'd say a little bit more about that. And in particular, because this is a kind of in its various forms, a kind of nationalist project, um, if you could say about the ways in which anti-Semitism, um, you know, plays into some of this as well um, during, you know, during the entire period. Thanks. Thank you. OK, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to remember. Apologies um, if I might have to you might have to repeat your second question, but just to uh, answer the, the first. I mean, Budapest was central in a sense that I think in the histories of 
um, non-normative and queer sexualities, um, you know, urban rural divide is, is, is real. Um, I think, you know, that kind of anonymity, uh, mobility, um, at the same time, public sexual culture that the Budapest could offer uh, at the turn of the 20th century really couldn't have been replicated in, in much smaller towns. Now, there was, according to my, these uh, investigative journalists who I look at who go slumming in, in, in Budapest, and they talk about that there was these chapters across you know, um, Hungary. There were smaller towns where there were homosexual many organizations, but I didn't have um, the capabilities <laughs> to look at local archives. It will be, you know, a, a future project, but I think it would be important. But I would just say that one of the other important elements, which I didn't get to talk to, is that really Budapest and um, Vienna and Prague and even Trieste were very much connected. And they were not only connected to each other, um, through the language of, and this is German is huge, very important, you know, the language of sexology, but also the lingua franca, right? Like I think people were not only ethnically very diverse and, and trilingual in many, um, in, in, um, in the early 20th century, in many parts of the Austro-Hungarian empire, but Ger and most people had to speak German. And, and so in terms of creating a sense of community and also travel and, and corresponding and also reading the latest um, sexological texts, um, not only was in Latin, but also German did help. Um, so that was something that made uh, Budapest, you know, um, I think centrally located and also connected to um, Central Europe more generally. But um, so I think I'll leave it there. But in, in terms of second, it's, I mean, I think eugenics and, it, you know, there's been, you know, as most of you are aware there's a lot of um, more recent uh, work in, in uh, eugenics in the East Central Europe that shows that both, um, of course, um, the conservative regimes as well as the leftist and liberal regimes were heavily invested in eugenics. Um, and the idea of healthy body and healthy offsprings were central um, um, really from um, the beginning of the 20th century. Both Budapest and Vienna had eugenic societies that were very vibrant and even the communists they were had eugenic ideas about making um you know the future hungarians healthy and um in terms of but what i so i think in terms of um again this idea of um homosexuality it's it's interesting because it's it was um um what's the words apologies um was not mutually uh What's the word? Well, not mutually um, either or. What's <laughs> um, apology? So essentially, homosexuality uh, were not seen as as um, as mutually exclusive. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Not mutually exclusive. My my um, um, language is at the level of a five year old at the moment. That's that's where I, I speak to in most days. And so not mutually exclusive. That is, they could imagine um, the future of healthy Hungarians with homosexual acts being part of it, um, which is which is important. Now the question of um, um, and yeah, that, so just to answer the last question. The question of anti-Semitism and and of course uh, and and the the place of um, Jews, which is huge. Anyone who's of course familiar with um, uh, the region knows that the 
the association of of sexuality and sensuality is all is historically being associated with with Jewishness, right? And of course, in the turn of the century, history of the prostitution. If you think of works like Nancy Wingfield's um, recent book on um, the history of prostitution in um, the Austrian half of the monarchy, shows how um, you know not even if they weren't. Jews, Jewish, uh, madams of, of bordellos and, and prostitutes themselves were seen as and associated with Jewishness. And um, what is interesting, there's, it's similar in the Hungarian case. However, in contrast to what happens to Vienna in the interwar era and Austria more generally, like, uh, you know, Mati Bunz's work and is a famous, very important work of, of, of queerness in, 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 in the Austrian context in the interwar era shows how Jews, of course, also were associated with homosexuality and queerness, and that again is a transnational. You know, it's 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 something that has been the case in the U.S. in 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 elsewhere. But what is interesting is that in the Hungarian case, um, and this is where the silencing becomes important. The same time as Hungary becomes the first country, be way before Nazi Germany, um, to pass the first anti-Jewish laws, and also eventually. Um, eventually, based on the Nazi, the eugenic and, and Nazi Nuremberg laws, um, passes passes regulations that bans um, sexual relations between uh, Hungarians and, and 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 Jewish Hungarians. It does not um, continue that coupling of Jewishness and and homosexuality. Basically, even again, and this is very interesting, the same time as they are incredibly loud and make those claims about uh, sexual promiscuity and un, you know, non-respected, non-respectful behaviors, both men and, and women, um, uh, Jewish uh, in the heterosexual context, there is a total silence of, of basically queerness, the relationship between queerness and um, queerness and, 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 and Jewishness. So that in that sense, you have a departure of, of um, you know, uh, queering of, of, of and, and, and the relation between queerness and anti-Semitism. But I stop here because I see that it's 6.15. <laughs> uh, well, you did a brilliant job answering uh, all the questions and also presenting uh, your really uh, fascinating landscape covering a lot of territory. So uh, let me just uh, thank you very much on behalf of Krika for sharing your work with us. Uh, Professor Kurumai, it was a great pleasure. And uh, I'm sure the audience uh, would like to join me in the audience. I see the uh, icons are appearing of uh, popping on the screen. Uh, it was a great pleasure. So thank you for the opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, please stay safe. And again, thank you.